0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, the Saturday social with Laura Cooper. And I'm just checking to make sure that I have got Jamie Pembroke in, and we do, I think. And we've got a great show lined up for you guys today. We are talking data, all about data And we've got James Pembroke, we've got Richard Selfridge coming on as well. And we are gonna be talking about data in school. What's good data? What is bad data? And actually, what should data look like in your school? So welcome everyone, good morning. It is 11 o'clock, we're on until 1230. This is Teachers Talk Radio with the Saturday Social. I'm just gonna see, James, do we have you on? uh yeah excellent there <laughs> hey, we are right.
2: yeah you can hear me we it's can brilliant. hear you that's, that's awesome music that's brilliant. brilliant
1: this is only the second time i've done a twitter space so i'm just making sure that everything's running smoothly but i think it well,
2: oh. sound very professional <laughs>
1: so... well wow thanks <laughs> yeah well that's good voice for radio oh goodness gracious no it is this is this is the new twitter spaces so it's all good well it is great to have you james now you really don't need any introduction but For those who have joined us, we've got a couple of people who have joined us. Um, Hopefully, Richard's going to be joining us here as well shortly. Yeah. Um, But can you just introduce yourself for everyone listening? Yeah,
2: sure. Okay. So, um, James Pembroke. I'm um, Sigplus on Twitter. At J Pembroke is my Twitter handle, but Sigplus is my, my little logo, little green logo, which has been around for quite a while. I was a local authority data analyst years ago, and before that, I was a data analyst for a, a quango and before that I was a, a geologist but uh, you know life changes um and I, yeah so, so I've just been working on school data with school data for a very very long time um I left the local authority school improvement team in about 2014 um because I started to realize that um well, I wanted my own space I suppose and uh, I wanted to do my own thing and I realized that I could uh, be quite effective through Twitter and through blogging, which was maybe kind of against some of the things I was tweeting and blogging about were kind of against local authority rules. So uh, anyway, it was time to move on. So there we go. Here I am several years later. And um, yeah, still involved in school data. So uh, uh, yeah, there you go.
1: Well, excellent. It is great to have you. We, we, you and I have had a number of conversations. I'm missing all of our data parties we used to hold in my oh, school as yeah. well.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if those people who want to know what a data party is, I do some uh, governor training and um, in, in the school hall at Flora's school, um, in Cromarsh Gifford. Um, and uh, <laughs> I would arrive to do this governor training and find uh, balloons. <laughs> <laughs> and party streamers and party poppers and things just lying around. So, um, yeah, that's the only time that has happened,
1: but, you know. you got to make it a party. It well,
2: <laughs> yeah, put the fun into data.
1: Oh, we love it. We love a good data party. We haven't had one since before COVID, so it's time to have a new one. we got to have a new one, a post-COVID data party. We are joined now as well. Richard has just joined us as well. Now I've not ever spoken to Richard so I'm really excited about this. Um Richard, would you like to can you just make sure that we can uh, connect you? Can you speak Richard? Are you here?
0: I am indeed here.
1: Uh-huh. Oh brilliant. It is great to have you with us Richard. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
0: Excellent. No, it's nice to be here.
1: Would you mind just introducing yourself very quickly to everyone who's listening at the moment?
0: Sure, no problem. So uh, my name is Richard Selfridge. Um, I'm a primary school teacher by trade. I trained about 20 years ago now. Um, I started off teaching in London. Um, I wanted to work with small children with four and five-year-olds because I've never understood why um, people don't like maths. I now know a lot more having taught lots of children maths and you understand why they don't. But I started teaching young children in, uh, in London, ended up working in Key Stage 2 um, and then moved up to sunny Yorkshire about 12 years ago now. Um, uh, I moved up here, um, uh, continued to work as a primary school teacher, and then about seven or eight years ago, um, sort of alongside Jamie, uh, began to realise that the way data and numbers were being used in school was, was um, questionable, to say the least. So I started doing a lot of work writing about data and, and just doing some lobbying um, to talk to people about, you know, why we were doing the things which we were doing, particularly in the mid-2010s, um, and just trying to make some changes there. So um, I've done lots of work on that. Um, and as a result of that, I've written a uh, first book, which was called uh, Data Busting for Schools, um, which largely uh, gave rays online on and, and all of the various um, statistical information that was being um, pushed out to schools and um, gave that a bit of a going over. Um, and then Jamie and I worked together on Data Proof Your School. Um, so uh, we've written that as well. So these days I do some teaching. I do two days a week teaching. Um, and then the rest of my time, I work with schools on sensible use of data. I also work on um, SEND and inclusion work uh, in schools. Uh, and sort of generally just lobbying for for more sensible use of information and better support for students who actually need support in school.
1: Oh, well, brilliant. Well, it is great to have you here today, Richard. I'm really excited um, and, I'm really excited to have James here as well. James, you and I talk. You know, we we've talked quite regularly about data, um, yep. and data. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that you go into certain schools and you see it being used to suit the school. Yep. Um, and so, I guess the question is really, let's start from the very very beginning.
2: Okay.
1: What data, Jamie, is right. useful?
2: Uh, Right. Okay. so um, I think for a start, we need we need to sort of split this down into uh, two kind of parts, really, because obviously there's statutory assessment, which is something you can't really get away from. You have to do it. You have no choice. That's not to say it's not useful. There may well be aspects of statutory assessment that are useful. Um, One would hope that uh, carrying out a key stage one assessment would be useful Um, in subsequent years for for the next year's teacher. So there's statutory assessment, which you can't get away from. uh, And and then there's the sort of internal uh, day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, term-to-term sort of assessment, uh, which we certainly, certainly should be useful. The reason why I keep saying should be useful or hopefully is useful is the problem is that data in schools is too focused, really, on proving something proving a story hopefully a nice rose sort of tinted you know happy story um to people outside of the school and i'd include governors in that and i hope we get a chance to talk about governors because i think that's uh i'm starting to realize just what a big deal it is the sort of govern, governor sort of data literacy understanding of data reliance on data and and most recently obviously we know now that ofsted in their, their latest framework are saying we're no longer going to look at your school's internal assessment data. And and that seems to have been borne out in the vast majority of inspections where I've spoken to head teachers seniorly and said, yep, they didn't look. I did actually speak to uh, someone this week who said, they did want to see some of our internal data on like reading ages for children. We'll, we'll get onto this thing about the lowest 20% nationally. And there's this focus on that. I'm sure that uh, Richard will have a lot to say about that focus. So, but in most cases, Ofsted like are not looking at data, and the reason why they did this, I think, is because they realised that they they have become a massive part of the problem. Obviously, no surprise there. That data was being distorted uh, to prove something. So I keep joking about this. It's like someone comes into your school and says, "Oh hi, um, I, I've come to inspect your school. I've come to look around. Um, have you have you prepared your made up data for me?" And you go, "Oh yeah, here you go. Here's my made up data." And you look at it, you go, oh, "Your made up data seems to be in order." You know, bye. And and that problem that that data in schools was more about trying to prove something to someone rather than giving you this kind of warts and all picture so i'm telling you something really really useful um so it just became a sort of an audit process uh and it became um sort of embellished and distorted um, Assessment by its very nature because it's a, sort of it is a human decision is already biased anyway um, but that's not to say we shouldn't be making teacher assessments I mean, the, the point I sort of keep coming back to is that teacher assessment and high stakes accountability or performance management make for really unhappy bedfellows you can't and, and the, the the assessment without levels commission report and later sort of data management reports um from those data management review groups make this point you you can't and the work making data work report Becky Allen's report in 2018 um, make this point, you can't really use teacher assessment for multiple purposes. If you do, it will be, there's a massive risk that it will be bent out of shape. So there are big problems both with statutory assessment data, which I believe uh, we, we've all seen the phonics, the distribution of phonics scores with that kind of massive great cliff edge at 32 marks. I think that looks like really weird. If you look at the distribution of total point scores, that kind of sp- that graph with a massive spike in the middle, which is the distribution of point scores for earliest foundation stage, that looks really, really weird. That will be a thing of the past because they've got they're getting rid of like the exceeding band for for early years. But well, we'll see. Um, key stage one, we know that in key stage one, a key stage one result for say an infant school is a result, whereas for an all-through primary school, it's a bit of both. It's both a result and a baseline. Think, of, oh, which one's the most important? The baseline is the most important, so let's make sure it's a bit on the low side, perhaps. So, key stage one data becomes distorted. Uh, key stage two they are, um, tests, so uh, and they are quite rigorously controlled. So, key stage two tests are generally one would assume are reasonably accurate and reliable, but but um, the odd one out there, I suppose, is writing, and we do see these weird discrepancies between results in reading and results in writing, so that's another one. And then ongoing, I suppose, through all the interim years and all the other assessments we make, teachers will be making assessments and that's fine. So they'll be making assessments to say whether a child is meeting expectations or is just below and needs a bit of support or is well below um, and therefore needs um, maybe a, a completely uh, sort of their own learning plan and their own sort of tailored journey and, and curriculum um, or they're working at greater depth. That sort of thing is fine. And. Um, but but then you get these maybe these targets start creeping in so i, I joke about the 85% thing so uh, uh, 85% of your children should be at age related expectations at the end of the year and then surprise surprise 85% of children are at the end are at age related expectations at the end of the year at the end of year 3 85% at the end of year 4 85% at the end of year 5 85% at the end of year 6 52% meet expected standards you know these these are big problems in schools so the answer. I know that's not answering your question. I'm just kind of setting it up that there are these huge no, problems good. still with data, with the reliability of data and how data is being sort of bent beyond its elastic limit because of the stresses that are placed upon it. Um, teacher assessment sh- is, is going to be broad and teachers can make that a judgment um, about whether a child is able to do or not do what they expect them to be able to do. Beyond that, me and richard will talk a lot about standardized tests standardized tests give you external reference unbiased um, external reference that's useful they're not very good at telling you what children do and don't know based on, you know on, on, you know what they've just based on what you've just taught them because that's not their purpose um, and then there are specific sort of diagnostic assessments that you might apply to only just a handful of children or maybe only one child. And, and that's important as well, that you might have these very tailored assessments. So I, I, I think that in general, there's going to be general teacher assessments being made. But for some children, what is good assessment can be on a case by case basis. So I'm going to breathe now.
1: Okay. No, you do. (laughs) You breathe. Richard, at any point, do you come in? Um, I'm just going to also very quickly before you speak, Richard, just to say we've got loads of listeners um, listening at the moment. If anyone wants to ask any questions for James or Richard, please just put your hand up and I will make you a speaker. Um, We've also got Mary Myatt listening in, which is great to see her. We've got a show with Mary Myatt coming on, uh, I think, uh, not too far away. So keep an eye out for that. Um, but we've got lots of listeners, so please do ask any questions as we go on. All right, Richard, over to you.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's uh, again the discussion about data is fascinating for all kinds of reasons. Um, so one of the uh, one of the reasons why I um, was particularly frustrated with the way which, um, data information was being used in school, again, a few years ago, um, and the reason why I got interested in um, in lobbying and making changes to things um, was because um, my background, I did a maths. Um, statistics degree um, many years ago and therefore you know having looked very closely at what how statistics have been developed and how they should be used the way which things were being done in school was certainly questionable at the very least I think there's the few things which I would say are um, as with all of these things definitions are really important and understanding what we mean by these different things is really important um, because broadly um data has become to mean a particular thing within the school system but mm-hmm. essentially if, if you're looking at data you're looking at data and information information broadly is um it's kind of classified data or information which has got some meaningful value so some information so you want information about your pupils and you definitely want information about your school um data that tends to be sort of more factual so it tends to mean um uh occasionally numbers so you've got quantitative data but you've also got qualitative data information um, which is 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 about those pupils but in, in the form of data so you've got usually some categories or some ways of, of uh, defining pupils and it's worth I mean, going back to that um, those initial ideas because in school data um, certainly had become, we're moving away from this a little bit at the moment, and Jamie and I work a lot to try and get people to move away from this, data had become basically a number. So the pupils in schools had been reduced to a number of some kind. That might have been hidden behind um, some uh, some name or, or title that wasn't Uh, It was implied it wasn't a number, you know, working towards something or or to be or something. But effectively, you were you were allocating numbers to pupils, Um, and there's a lot of you know a lot of reason why the government in particular is keen to allocate numbers to pupils. because they like to then measure pupils at two or have a number for pupils at two different points, um, and then create something which is often referred to as a progress score of some kind. So again, so you're getting into that kind of use of data in school, um, which is how data had, as as Jamie said, that's what had happened as a result of changes centrally and because of the position that Ofsted were in, they were coming in and asking for data, and by data that's what they meant. I want to see your numbers. Um, whereas actually, when when Jamie and I talk about data, we're talking about what you need is you need information some of that will be numerical some of that will be quantitative you need information about your pupils so that you can work out what you actually need to change in your school in your organization in your classroom to support particularly those pupils who are not keeping up with the curriculum or who need additional um, assistance or help or or adjustments to be made for them to help them so again I think that's the key thing so really thinking about those definitions Um, we're moving away from data meaning just numbers to the idea that data is information about pupils, classes, schools and so on.
1: Yeah, I think that's really actually a really pertinent point about the fact that data is information. Um, And and that, that I think, changes the whole concept of data completely. Um, So I'm going to go back to the point. So, Jamie, you, you touched on the fact that obviously kind of the idea that data can be made to look mm. any way for a school and it could yeah. tell any story that a school wants to create with its data yeah. um and i think this is a really important point because we we know that there's a lot of data that's falsified or data that's not reliable it's not valid yeah. so i mean where do we where do we where do schools go with this if schools want to relook at the way that they assess and the right ra- the way they create data what, what would be a starting point for school wanting to re-look at this and, and rethink how they approach this? Um,
2: have an absolute ban on measuring progress is a really good place to start. So you are not allowed to, to measure progress. And, um, or even progress, attempt
0: to do so. <laughs> uh,
2: and it's, a really difficult, yeah, it's a really difficult thing to do because that has been, that's been the kind of the hub on which the wheel is built. Progress measures were everything and they still are in many schools. So I have conversations with schools on a daily basis where I'm pretty much saying, but that measure is garbage. And they'll go, yeah, I know it's garbage, but I have to do it. I still have these conversations all the time. You are making up, Richard just talking about numbers, you are making up numbers. You're basically, what, what we're doing is we, we are converting, most of the time in primary, we are, obviously we're heavily reliant on teacher assessment in all phases, but but particularly in primary, we're heavily reliant on, on um, teacher assessment in statutory assessment. And that is used to measure progress um, it, it at a sort of a national level so those those accountability measures we can't escape those those accountability measures of progress and attainment are heavily reliant in primary on on um on teacher assessment which is a massive problem um richard and i were really interested in the edsk uh, report which kind of basically said um so they're a think tank and they said like scrap all statutory assessment as it currently is in primary schools and then adopt the sort of strategy that, that Australia and Denmark and I think Wales are doing, which is kind of regular um, low stakes, um, online adaptive tests, uh, which are quite quick to administer. Some schools already do this, um, not as a sort of a national thing, obviously, but they just do it off their own bat. They use these online adaptive tests, but, but stop trying to measure progress. Stop trying to convert a teacher's um, judgment into a number. So what we do is go right what's your judgment and obviously it's subjective and it's biased and, and can be distorted what's your judgment my judgment is this let's convert that to a number right a year later what's your judgment now my judgment is this let's convert that to another number let's subtract one number from the other let's see the difference between those two numbers and that equals progress and then let's go and report that to governors they don't got a clue what that means no one has a clue what that means and we did it for years we did it with levels and we've done it since. Go. Got rid of levels. We're still doing it. Loads of schools are still doing it. I speak to schools every week that have got some like really quite crazy convoluted progress schemes that they use. Um, they're still trying to do this, and it's just absolute garbage. It's meaningless. But that is the be all and end all. That right? it's it's not data for information. It's data to measure progress, and it's so disconnected from reality. If you say, "Oh, children have got to go up by a point per term," I don't know what a point is, but let's say children have got to go up by a point per term. Children will go up by a point a term. I had a teacher this week admit that to me. He said, "Yeah, yeah, we just move them up." I remember. Um, I, d- I don't know if Ed, Ed, Ed is probably not. Ed Finch is probably not listening, but he told me this story about when he was uh, when he was a younger teacher and he it was his first kind of turn of having to put stuff into the school's tracking system, um, which I don't know was a MIS or a spreadsheet or whatever. And um, he was really kind of worried about it. How do, I, how do I do? This? And and um and he said his mentor kind of you know looking after him just took him under his wing and said oh don't worry Ed we just add Go, oh, right yeah just 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 add two each each year and and then everyone's happy and that's that's still what what schools are doing so stop trying to uh, measure progress you're not going to be able to second guess those national measures anyway um that you're not going to be emulate them in any way you're not going to, be able to predict them they're not so yeah just stop trying to do that. And start being really honest, have these really honest conversations, not just amongst senior leaders, but involve staff in this. What data is useful and what data isn't? And that's actually should be a really simple process. But it's not because some because I I guess somebody likened it to Stockholm syndrome. You know, you you become so entrenched in a way of working that it's really difficult to see beyond it and go beyond it. But you have to. In order to arrive emerge into this glorious uh you know utopia of uh, relevant and useful data that we're, we're aiming for so that's the start point is stop gearing your systems around this need to quantify the distance that children travel between one point and another but unfortunately that is what the majority of systems that schools put in place do that's what they are geared to do that's their purpose is to do exactly that so we've paid all this money for these systems that that that's how they are built that's their purpose and um, that's a problem because schools are many schools are still a long long way and I you know primary it's a problem in primary but it's a problem in secondary as well secondary schools are talking about children on GCSE grades in key stage three going from a a grade five minus to a grade six plus or something I, I don't know you know I don't know what that means but that's happening so it's not just in primary
1: no and absolutely and i i know there's people listening right now whose schools absolutely do this where it is a measure of progress and You know, we know you and I have had the conversation many times and it's hard to get your head around when you're so entrenched in it, especially as teachers. Um, But governors. So governors Mm -hmm. is the big thing because I know a lot of heads and I've spoken to loads of heads who do the progress measure because their governors expect it. So, Richard, I know you were going to come in and speak. I can see that Mm -hmm. you want to speak. So I don't know if it's something. Is it that heads are continuing to do this progress measure because a they it's all they know because this is where levels came from and we have to measure progress because this is sort of entrenched within us? But what do we do when governors are asking us for this data as well?
0: Uh, again, and it's a it's a really um, interesting area. Um, and- Jamie will tell you this as well, but because um, uh, he also has been a school governor. Um, I'm a school governor. I'm a chair of governors at one school, governor at another one, um, and it's been fascinating again over the last number of years watching um, how governors uh, react to the changes that are happening with the school system, as head teachers react to the changes within the, within the school system. I think the key here again is uh, if if you're a head teacher or if you're a senior leader and you've been able to to move away from data as a progress measure uh, and you've got um, you're using information in the school in a different way again Jamie and I will talk about what we suggest which is that you should move from a progress mindset to an action mindset but if you've managed to do that so if you've moved away from a progress um, mindset then you won't you'll be thinking about data in a very different way you'll be having very different discussions with your um, with your governors for a lot of head teachers and senior leaders there's still a bit of a legacy of um, data as a, as a progress um, focus um, measure, and the the issue with that is is moving away from that is difficult, and part of the reason why that's been difficult is because, again, I liken this to the fact that uh, one needs to be aware of the wolves. Um, so the wolves are out there, and they might come to your school. Um, and they might ask you some questions and you worry about that. And school uh, leaders often then are kind of forced into a sheep role where they want to stay with the flock. We don't want to be too close to the edge of the flock because there's wolves there and they might pick us off. So schools tend to follow what other schools are doing. So, you know, a lot of senior leaders, as you'll know, um, tend to, not quite obsessively, although occasionally obsessively, follow what Ofsted are doing and so on. They worry about that. And there's still a lot of worry in the system um, because people uh, have come through a system where if somebody came into your school six, seven years ago, they would ask you about some numbers. As Jamie said earlier, they're not doing that now, and that is a big change, but it's hard to really believe that that's happening for a lot (laughs) of uh, uh, head teachers, senior leaders. But if you're in that kind of middle group where you're still not sure about it, Jamie and I are here to reassure you that you really don't need to worry about um, producing numbers for Ofsted. That's not what they need. And therefore, you don't need to produce numbers for your, uh, for your governors. You need to do something different. Um, as I say, some people are still very much in, that, in that, um, that position where it's really hard to let go, and then they're in a different position. But let's assume you're somebody who's, who's come out of um, uh, progress. You're beginning to understand that we're not using data as a progress measure internally, that we're using it in a slightly different way then you have a different conversation with your governors and I say what you should be then thinking about is what do the governors actually need to know they need to know that you've got a good understanding as to the challenge in each class in each cohort um, uh, in each key stage and so on they need to know that you understand what the challenge is and that you're doing something about the challenges which you you've understood and then you begin to have a very different conversation um, because what the governors then will ask you for is information that will say okay so you've told us that these pupils need additional support. What are you doing for those pupils? Rather than worrying about everybody, because a lot of the pupils are making good progress or good, you know, good development. So again, it's a different conversation. I think, again, it's it's key to to think where you are on that journey um, and think, are you still worrying about progress? And if you are, then I say, reach out to us because we'll help you. <laughs> but if you've moved beyond that, you'll be having a very different conversation.
1: Yeah, really, really interesting. So, I mean, as a school, we don't measure progress. I'm just gonna put that out there before I start asking you these questions. But so I know there's gonna be people listening, saying, okay, if we don't measure progress, what do you measure? If, if progress isn't a measure, what are we measuring? And how do we know children are making progress if our data doesn't show it? Yeah, oh,
2: well, wow. that's a really good, I, I love this. So, so right, okay, just coming, just, just um, another point on this. So in terms of like questions you can ask, I spoke to a head teacher this week about this, and this was about governors. So my governors want this data. So there are still many schools go, oh, yeah, I just make stuff up, really. I almost admit it; I just kind of make stuff up. So um, I said to this teacher, one of the things you can ask—well, three questions really. Um, what is progress? If you want to measure something, you need to define what it is. So we need to define what progress is. I think that's a really difficult thing to do because I think it depends on the child and their needs and their barriers and progress means different things like good progress, whatever good progress is, you know it, when you see it, but whether you can actually define it, you know, you know, measure it in any way. So define what progress is and then establish a unit of measurement of progress, like a standard unit, an SI unit of measurement of progress uh, and then have some way of, of measuring it. So you need a system to measure it. And, and all of those things are really, really difficult. Um, value added is probably the best way of doing it. And that is comparing a child's uh, attainment at a point to the average attainment of other children nationally. Uh, in the case of, you know, um, a main like those DFE measures, other children nationally with the same start point. Right, that's fairly effective. And I would say for all its faults, Progress 8 is probably about as good as a progress measure is gonna get because it's got a standardized test at one end, Key Stage 2, and a standardized test at the other end, GCSEs. It's not perfect by any stretch, um, but it's about as good as I think as a progress measure is gonna get. Certainly better than have they made two or three levels of progress or whatever nonsense it was we are doing years ago. in primary schools, we have a key stage one to key stage two measure, which is massively problematic because it's heavily reliant on teacher assessment at key stage one and writing at key stage two. So therefore, it's open to manipulation. So the first thing you need to do is maybe have a conversation for your governors about, well, in order to measure this, we need to define what it is. And defining what progress is, is a really, really complicated thing. So basically, we can't do it. I think what I would recommend for reporting to governors is just simply reporting. The percentage of children in, say, year five, in reading, writing, and maths, that are, we like to use this word, fine. We don't really have any major concerns. Here is a group of children, 70% of children in this cohort are fine, 20% 20 of whom are actually more than fine. You know, they're really high flying. Maybe they're going to score a high score at Key Stage 2 or get greater depth or whatever. That's fine. Okay, but that means that 30% of the cohort are not fine. And what governors should be asking is about they should be asking questions about those 30% of children. That's what they should be zoning in on the support that's provided for them, the strategies, the strategies we have in place, whether those are effective, whether they're working. Um, some of those children will be perfectly capable of sitting key stage two tests and may well catch up and may well meet expected standards. Some of those children will not. And some of those children won't be accessing tests and they will obviously they will often be, um, have EHCPs and they will have their own particular learning plans. And it does become, you've got eight children here that are not fine. That's going to be eight different conversations. There is no neat way of packaging this. Um, I, I often say that, that, you know, there is a cohort and then there are individuals. All this kind of focus on groups, boys versus girls, pupil premium versus non-people, premium, that's all nonsense as well. So governors should be saying, OK, you've told me that this proportion of children are OK. We don't need to worry about them. What are we doing about these children that aren't? And probing, you know, in that area, that's what they should be doing
1: really really interesting okay thank you James we're gonna we're gonna come back to that anyone who's just joined us just so you know we are here on the Saturday social talking data with James Pembroke and Richard Selfridge um, asking all questions about data so if you have any questions and you've joined us and you'd like to ask James or Richard a question please do raise your hands and I'll make you a speaker um, also for our sponsors here we go Witherslack slack group are a leading provider of specialist education and care they need people like you. To help them achieve even more. At Witherslack, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. Witherslack currently have some fantastic career opportunities available to apply for. Check out www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. All right, we are here with James Pembroke and Richard Selfridge talking data. What is data? Now, we've been talking about progress and the fact that we should not be measuring progress. And Mm -hmm. if we're not measuring progress, what do we measure? And we've been talking about data as information. Now. One of the things that you said, James, is about progress and being able to actually define what progress is. So schools should be able to then have a definition of progress. What is progress going to look like in our schools? Um, And I think that's a really important point, because I think for us, that was something that we had to come back to as a school, is think about what is progress going to look like? What are we going to define progress as? Um, So Richard, what would you say about progress in your school as a teacher? How yeah. do you define progress?
0: It, again, and it's it's really it's a key point because I say we're moving beyond this sort of progress focus, hopefully to something else. Um, and in terms of um, I'll start with uh, just what, what progress has, be- has come to mean across the school system. So there's two key things that progress means um, at the moment. So we had an expected progress measure. Um, which existed, which came through the DfE and then filtered out to schools, um, which was a numerical idea of progress. And this is the idea of the value added and so on that we've talked a little bit about. And this is where Mm -hmm. you take two numbers, you compare them at one point and then at another point later in time. So that idea of progress as a number um, that uh, and the idea of expected, expected progress was very much something which the, the government likes, the DfE pushed into school. And that still exists as, as one idea of progress in school. The other idea of progress is the one that's in the current um, Ofsted framework, um, which is that pupils know more and can do more. Mm. So then you've got a different idea of progress. And that's much more about ensuring that your curriculum, we all know there's a big curriculum coming through sc- schools at the moment, washing over us all where we're thinking about the curriculum and making sure that pupils um, know more and can do more. So you've got that definition of progress. Personally, I think the two things, the the, the, the word progress, we need to kind of reclaim, um, which is why you'll hear me a lot of the time talking about development and trying to move away from the idea of progress, because until you've really broken that idea of it not being a numerical thing, um, you need to, it, it, it's probably best not to use it as a term. So I think it's about development in school. You know, how do you know that pupils are making development in school? Um, you do that by gathering useful information, and hopefully that information which you're gathering is um, a, it builds on previous information. This is another thing which James and I talk a lot about, is that what we really want you to think about as schools is to move away from taking snapshots of pupils, taking one picture, to building a broader and wider picture about a pupil. It seems ridiculous if, when you think about it, if you stop and think that that you don't know any more about somebody who's in year four or year five or year nine or year 10 than you do about a child who's coming in reception year one um, or a child in year seven. You should know a lot more about pupils who've been in your school for a length of time. And one of your questions earlier was, you know, how do we know that these children are, are making progress? By which I mean, how do we know that uh, I interpret it as how do we know that they're developing? You know that they're developing because every time you check them, they seem to be OK. Every time you use one of the tools which we have to check where pupils are, they're in the middle of the pack. They're they're okay, As Jamie says, they're fine. Uh, But other pupils you know are not fine. Either they're not fine now, they've consistently not been fine, or they're not fine now and they were okay before, so something has changed, or they're okay now and they weren't fine before. Those are different categories of pupil. So, again, what we're trying to do now in school is to say rather than Okay, the last time we took a, a picture of these people, or the last time we asked somebody for a number, they gave us a number. That's the number for the child, and they will react to the, um, will react based on that number. What we'll do now is say, okay, well, uh, we've got all these pupils. The majority of pupils make good development in school. So we've looked at these pupils, 60, 70% of them are okay. So in a typical primary school classroom, you know, 15, 16 pupils, 17 pupils are okay. But here's some other pupils for whom we've had concerns in the past. We've got concerns now. We've always had concerns. And this is what we're doing for those pupils. So you're thinking about, um, again, moving away from this sort of progress idea to uh, how's the development going? And what are we doing about those pupils who for whom we have concerns? So I hope that makes sense. My last thing is that, um, because you were talking about data a bit earlier, there's a great quote, fantastic quote by, uh, I think he's an economist called Ronald Coase, which is, uh, if you torture data long enough, it'll confess to anything. Yeah. Which (laughs) Which I used to use a lot, again, when I was talking about data again you can imagine the conversations that jamie and i were having five or six years ago we'd (laughs) say to people progress measures don't make any sense they're nonsense and people would look at you just like you're crazy what do you mean we have to do progress whereas now i I don't know jamie you'll probably find the same thing when i'm going to schools and you say so where are you with your idea of progress what do you think progress means people are much more aware that we've moved forward and we've changed Yeah.
1: yeah yeah absolutely absolutely i mean you 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 say that people are more aware but there's so many schools still measuring progress um and it's it's yeah it's crazy and and as you said richard about this new curriculum that we're focusing on where we are expecting children to know more and almost remember more and it's about facts and and giving them more information you know it it is it you can see where schools might be going again with this whole idea of progress and it is i think really important that we take that word away which i think is a really important point you made richard is actually we shouldn't be using that word progress and it is about the development of the child because isn't that what schools are there to do it's about developing the whole child and seeing what gaps they have and thinking about how can we develop
0: and exactly. fill those gaps and it's a really crucial thing because um, because there is a bit i mean the, the reason why we have key stages is because because pupils change as they get older you know it, key stage one is different to key stage two is different to key stage three and so on um and again the current so the current ofsted framework that we have which has this idea of progress of knowing more and doing more is you know for all the things that it's it's much better than what we had before in many ways it's it's quite a secondary focused um uh, inspection framework so yes. the idea of people's knowing more and, and doing more, I think that makes a lot of sense in year eight and year nine. In year one and year two, it's a bit different because what we're doing in year one and year two, you know, key stage one and that turn into key stage, there's a lot of socialization that we're doing. There's a, there's a lot more to what we're doing. Yes, we're teaching them to read and write and add up. That's what we're doing in primary. But that's not the only thing we're doing. The thing we're doing is making sure that these pupils have a knowledge of the world, you know, an understanding of how to interact with other pupils in a school context. So it's all those things. So that's why development is is it's it's a much better term. And it's much I'd say if you focus on what which of the pupils are not developing, and do we know you know what do we think about that? Why that might be the case? I also agree with you that far too many schools again. Like it's, it's scary to give up that progress if that's what you're used to, if that, all your systems are designed to do it. And as yeah. Jamie was saying, if a lot of your MIS systems are encouraging you to put pupils into limited buckets and then compare the buckets to each other, that's really hard. But yeah. lots of schools are not doing that. loads of schools have moved forward and, they, and you know, um, they, they have changed the way which they think about information and data. And they're much more, they use the information to, to say, okay, what are we actually doing now as a result? and and again it's 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 a revelation when when uh, certainly the schools i work with when they get through to the point where they realize where everybody is able to talk about the information in a positive way it's not a you know, punitive terrible thing it's a really it's really useful to be able to check in on pupils and to add to the picture that we're building of them
1: yeah absolutely and you know you're raising so many i mean we could talk about this for hours and hours um, and so one of the things that that i picked up when you were speaking is you were talking about obviously this whole idea of you know you're looking at the children and saying that you know this group of children they're fine this group of children they are struggling um now i know how we do it in our school but what what so what would you say to anyone listening who's saying okay well you're picking up all those children who are fine but actually what about those children who are fine but should be doing better is that where then you would then suggest to schools that the people progress meeting should be taking over and this whole idea of action that you talk about?
0: Um, yes, I'll happily jump in on this one, Jamie, if that's okay. Mm, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, because again, so as well as the work I do on data, I say I do lots of work on um, inclusion for literacy in schools and I work with um, the Driver Youth Trust, who are a charity who supports schools with inclusion for literacy. Um, and recently, I've, I've written and developed uh, a literacy difficulties framework, which is being um, launched next month. Um, and there's loads of really good things in that which uh, again I'll, I'll link to that so that people can see the initial versions of that um, but what we say is, is essentially once you've identified some pupils are not making progress so let's what can we do about them then you need to use all of the research that we've got from you know the EEF the Education Endowment Foundation have been given all this money have done loads of things and guess what it turns out education's really hard and it's really difficult particularly when pupils don't find it easy um, which again I, I don't know about you, but uh, but I'm really glad that they've made that really clear. The EEF, there are no <laughs> magic bullets. <laughs> it's not a simple thing. As much as the uh, the politicians clearly thought, surely we we must know how to do this now. By now, we've been doing it for a hundred odd years. Yes, it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but what we do know is that, um, is that some people um, find school difficult, and we we have various ways of supporting people who find school difficult. Now they've again they could find school difficult for a number of reasons. Again, um, it could be. Um, support from home it could be chaotic lives it could be all kinds of things but it could also be what's happening in school but when it comes down to it really what you want to do is make sure that school pupils are in school in class focused and on learning once you've got you've dealt with the in school in class and lots of schools if that's your context that's the information you should be gathering who's not actually in school and who's not actually in class and what are we doing about that but let's put that to one side and go for the pupils who are in class and um, are they actually focused on trying to learn something and are they actually learning something Um, And then you need to really try and support those pupils. Once you've used your information well to to understand, yep, of the 30 pupils in this class, these seven pupils, eight pupils are are struggling with that, then what do we do? And what we do from the drive Youth Trust, say, is that based on all the information which we have, um, those people should remain in class as much as possible. The last thing you should do is take them out of class and do what we call interventions um, uh, and do something to those pupils. Um, You really want things to happen in class. So what you should really be doing there is there are a number of things you can think about. So firstly, structural changes. You know, how do we change the curriculum or how do we tweak the timetable for this class? If we know that we've got pupils in this class who, who need additional support with a particular area of the curriculum, let's say you're in year three and you don't really know your times tables very well. Most of the class probably do, but some pupils don't, and you know that that's an issue. Then you just time ta- you just um, put into your timetable more time for you to do work, the whole class to do work on times table. That'll help everybody. But it will particularly help those pupils who are struggling with times tables. Or if it's about phonics, you do the same kind of thing or whatever it is that you've identified for the individual pupils. So change your curriculum, change your your timetable. If you need to tweak your curriculum slightly, you've got a broad curriculum. But you might say, actually, for this class, we need to alter it a little bit. We need more focus on this particular area. You know, we cover a lot of things in primary um, uh, education. So we could think about changing the curriculum slightly because this group have missed out on a particular thing or they need something um, to happen for them. We also talk a lot about um, just making reasonable adjustments, to use that terminology from the SEND code of practice, where you make re- reasonable adjustments for pupils. If you've identified a pupil who, who struggles in a particular way, um, then you can make those reasonable um, adjustments. And you either put those in so the teacher knows this pupil has always struggled with your regulation or focus or whatever it is. These are the things which we know or we believe will help that pupil. Um, and then you also kind of do dynamic adjustments as well. So you know this is a teacher, you're in a class, you know the child, I just need to check in with that child every three minutes, because if I don't, they're not going to be focusing, and they're not going to be learning. They need some more support. These other pupils, I don't need to check in with that regularly, You know, but this pupil, I do need to do this. So you're making some changes in the class there and then I say the last resort is sometimes you might need to do intervention work where you're doing a particular thing for a pu- particular child or group of pupils if you think that's going to work and then you need to be very careful and that's a timetabling issue again but there's all kinds of ways that you can do that where you can you can structure things so that you can support pupils but again the, the key thing with using information um, well is that you 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 maximize your time with the pupils who need the additional support, the rest of the pupils, you check in with them regularly using standardised assessments and, and teacher assessments. But as if you, as far as you know they're doing well, then then you don't need to do much more. I'm not going to say too much at, at the moment about pupils who are making more development, but there are some things that you might we could talk about a bit in a bit about them. But at the moment we're really focusing on because it's a bigger group. The gen in most schools, in my experience, the pupils who for whatever reason. Are, are are just not making the progress we want them to so a long answer i hope that's given you some, no. Some thoughts.
1: no that's brilliant um it's brilliant and it's it's interesting because everything you were talking about about was about what we do in the classroom and for me it's really interesting because data becomes so far removed from what actually happens in the class um yeah. that, that almost becomes this whole entity in itself and actually we forget that actually we need to get back to quality first teaching and ensuring that every single child in our class is focused on and being given what they need
2: Yep. yeah yeah I, i'm just going to pick up actually on um so a few things. Um, you often hear people say, "Well, if 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 a child is like, well, what's what's the definition of good progress?" Uh, and and you and you often hear people say, "Well, if a child is keeping pace with the curriculum, you've got a, a well-designed, well-structured, challenging curriculum, and the child is keeping pace with that, then they are, by definition, making good progress." So people say that, and that's that's kind of fine. Um, but that doesn't mean that children who aren't keeping pace with curriculum are also not making good progress. And I think that's where some of the problems lie, that there are children that have other challenges, other needs, barriers to learning, and they can also make good progress. Uh, so, therefore, it's really, it is really it is a really difficult thing to sort of classify and, and measure. So, you know, as we've already said, and the point, I guess, is, is don't bother. Um, but I think you said, you asked earlier, like, you'll get him say, but how will we know? How we know? If children have made good progress, but but you know, you know they've made good progress. You just know. Just because you can't quantify something doesn't mean that you don't know it. And um, I, I do worry about some of the sort of tracking practices that go on, particularly in primary schools. So this is something I talk about a lot. Um, this hangover from APP which was a process that I think everyone openly admits they absolutely hated and yet they've rebuilt this in tracking systems (laughs) where we've got these massive long lists of well they might start off as a short list of tracking of of objectives they're often called or key indicators or whatever statements Um, often these will be drawn out of the national curriculum Uh, there's a whole bunch of these statements for reading writing and maths um, and at the end of year four, they should be able to do these things in reading. And at the end of year five, they should be able to do these things in maths. And and, and they tick these things off uh, and until they start to realise. And this is where maybe teachers can become their own worst enemies. They think, oh, these are very broad objectives. Um, so this all comes down to this. But how do I know if they're making progress? So these are very broad objectives. I'm going to start splitting these up. So I refer often to this um, uh, can multiply and divide by 10 100 thousands including decimals so i think that's in the year five mass curriculum i'm sure bridge can uh maybe uh, yeah, about year five, yeah 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 and um and so there's an objective and you go, oh yeah but it's really broad that i can't really say they've met that to the end of the year i want to have increments of that which i can say that they've met by the end of by by you know by the end of the autumn term, so then they get split into can multiply by ten, can multiply by hundred, can multiply by a thousand, can divide by ten. Divide, six what was one becomes six, and you do that for multiple objectives, and suddenly your twenty objectives have become two hundred objectives uh, or more. Um, and then this law of diminishing returns kicks in. That it's it, well, it's not assessment anyway. I mean, it's I think someone likened it to an audit process. It's just like teachers auditing what they've done, you know, ticking them off and uh, and and. Right, so so I've ticked off this many, and this equates to and So I have to tick off thirty percent of them, thirty-three percent by Christmas, and sixty-six percent by by Easter. Many, many. It's amazing how when I sort of stand and, and stand up and talk about this, no one really admits to doing it. Yet, well, all primary tracking systems do exactly that. They offer that, and most primary schools have a tracking system. So I know that teachers do it, and I've been in a room where a head teacher has said. And, and this comes back to the point about knowing whether the children made progress. Um, I've been in a room where a head teacher said, we're not doing that anymore. Because I I, I mentioned the law of diminishing terms, the more you ramp it up, the worse things get to the point where, and we know this happens, teachers just get to the end of the and go, oh, I've got a data drop. Oh, I just block fill it all. And they just select all green. All of those subjectives, yeah, they're done. I've covered those, boom, because there's hundreds of them. Um, and I remember a head teacher standing in front of the staff saying, we're not going to do this anymore. And it was really interesting looking out at this, all the, all the teachers' uh, faces. And some of them were literally punching the air. woo Excellent, because I don't do it anyway. And then there are some looking quite shocked, um, as if the rug's been pulled out from under their feet. And one put their hand up and said, but how will we know if they've made progress? So, you know. I don't believe that if an inspector or someone came into your room and said, tell me about the progress these children have made, that you would need to refer to this screen. And then imagine, I think there was that Tom Sherrington tweet years ago saying, oops, you've accidentally deleted your entire assessment database. How long before it has an impact on a single pupil? Which is a great, I think it's a thought experiment, which is a great thought experiment. See, so you can't tell that person about the progress these children have made without that screen in front of you but that screen in front of you just reflects what you thought it's just a reflection of your opinions your assessments that you've made so I don't believe that if that screen wasn't there if you are I'm sorry I can't I can't tell you anything about the progress these children have made because my screen doesn't work my laptop doesn't work or I've accidentally deleted my data it's funny how we have fallen into this that we think that we need to kind of assess in this well it's not assessment It's tracking um, in this detail and that without it, it's like the crutch is gone and we fall over. And that's all it is. Um, But but then we are addicted to it, maybe.
1: Yeah, I. I, And and it's a
2: primary thing, by the way. It's a primary thing. Secondary teachers don't do this.
1: Yeah, no. Secondary teachers don't do it. And it is very much primary. And while you were speaking, you know, it makes it makes me remember sort of where mm-hmm. data had first started in in our school. And but then it makes me think as well. Then if teachers are relying so heavily on this tracker, on this this thing where they've clicked the objectives to say that each child has reached this objective and this objective, um, does it then mean that actually, as schools, we need to actually reassess how we assess in the first place?
0: Well, I don't think yes, that's very much so. I'd say. <laughs> yeah, sorry,
2: Richard. I was yeah. just going to say I don't think that is assessment. That's the
0: recording yeah.
2: of your, yeah, your judgments in minute detail. It's not, it's not the I, assessment is done, and then you record it. So it's the I would argue, what do though. We need to record, sorry, go on, Karen.
1: I would argue a lot of schools actually see that process also as assessment, and it, therein possibly lies a bigger problem.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I'm going to jump in at this point and say again, and this is. a um, It's one of those things where you think about definitions and what do these words actually mean? What does assessment actually mean? Um, And again, we've written extensively about it because there's lots of things to be said there. What you're trying to work out uh, a lot of the time are are two different things. One of the things which you might be trying to assess is, does a child actually know this thing that I've taught them, this Mm. thing that I need them to know? So that's one thing which you're trying to assess. You're trying to work out, do they know this thing that I've taught them? Um, But the other thing which you might do, want to do is to assess where does this child sit compared to their peers? Now, those are two different things. And if you think about a GCSE uh, assessment, for example, um, or a Key Stage 2 assessment, the, the, the statutory ones, those are largely, they're not trying to work out what a people knows. They're trying to work out where does the child sit uh, um, uh, compared to their peers. Mm. And that's what a lot of written assessments are really good at. A lot of written assessments are that the structure, the the theory behind them is all about trying to place a child on a continuum between the pupils who haven't made as much development and the pupils who've made a lot of development. And this is one of the things which Jamie and I talk a lot about in terms of data literacy, understanding that that's what a lot of those assessments do. So a standardised test isn't going to tell you what a child knows. It's not designed to do that at all in any way at all. (laughs) And again, a lot of teachers (laughs) fall into that trap of, well, they got this question wrong and that I need to teach them this information. And the, the question's not testing whether you know that information. Um, the te- test um, item is there to assess, are you the kind of people who can answer this question correctly? So that's the first thing, that a lot of assessment, written assessment, is designed to put you on a continuum. Yeah. The other side is what you do as a teacher day-to-day, what I do in my class every day, um, and what most of us in the class do. You're trying to work out which of these people, do they actually know this information I've taught them? Can they retain that information? How do I check that? That's a different type of assessment. Um, a lot of the time that assessment isn't written down. It's not, it's not formalised. Um, it, a lot of it is intuitive. Um, so you're probably wrong. Not all the time, but in some ways you'll be wrong. Some of it you're not going to get right, um, which is why Jamie and, lo- and I and lots of other people will say you need to use the standardised assessments or the, the formal assessments to check against your biases as a teacher because you are going to be biased whether really you like it, and there's loads of evidence about the biases that we all have. So, again, so if we think about assessment, then you need to, say, so split into the two things. And, and, again, I think it's useful kind of splitting it into a driving test assessment, which is where you want most people to be able to pass a driving assessment. You don't want too many people to fail. You know, you really have to be a very bad driver to fail a driving test. So we want most people to pass. So you've got driving test assessments. And then you've got... Um, have you seen the TV show that's on at the moment called The 1% Club? where they start oh. off with 100 people and they go down to, you know, the only 1% of people can get these things. No, no. no. I've not seen it. Yeah. They start off with, you know, with questions that everybody can answer. And then they go down to ones that half the people can answer. And then they go down to quite difficult ones. Now, that's the kind of thing which you're using when you're doing standardized assessments, written assessments, key stage statutory assessments. There you're trying to put pupils on a, on a, on a continuum because you, you kind of need to know who the 1% are at the top end and also who the 10% at the bottom end are. You need to know those things. So you've got two things. You've got, uh, I say, the driving test assessments, which is a very different thing from the one percent club assessments. And in school, you, the, we, effectively, that's kind of things like you know spelling tests that you do in primary regularly. You're not setting those to see you know who's going to get stuff wrong. You're giving pupils things that you want expect them to know because that's what you expect them to know. But the key stage stuff, the the standardized tests that, that are really useful. Those ones are designed in a completely different way and give you completely different information. So there you go. So thinking about assessment, you need to use both and you need to use them both sensibly and proportionately. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
2: so we talk a lot about standardised tests and mm. uh, it's been really interesting over the last few years. this has been this kind of bit of a gold rush, really, I suppose, for standardised test companies. Um, schools have really jumped on them and sometimes maybe without really thinking about what they want from a test. So... Uh, they are certainly useful, but as Richard sort of sa- is, is, is saying, they don't necessarily do the thing that you think that they're doing. So uh, there, are, there are a couple of things. One is you know, they're not necessarily the best tool or they're not the best tool to check whether children have understood what you've just taught them because they're not designed around your curriculum. They are an approximation of what children, year five children at the end of the autumn term would probably know based on the structure of the national curriculum, I guess, But they're certainly not based on what you've just taught in your school that term. That's not what they do. So they will give you a a fairly reliable um, idea of where your children sit within the national population. That is their purpose. But then that sort of raises awkward questions about question level analysis. So a lot of schools are really invested in using these for question level analysis. And I guess, you know, that's fine. And and if you use an online test, an online sort of adaptive test, uh, then that's done for you. And key stage two, that's done for you as well because it's sent off and it's marked, and then that's and you get the sort of QLA stuff back via uh, the ASP system or whatever. So, but if teachers are spending a lot of time one marking these tests, um, and then and obviously I'm talking about these uh, commercially available optional standardized tests that you might use in year two, three, four, five, um, and then. That reduces it to a bunch of answers, um, uh, yeses and noes, which are represented as as ones and zeros that you then put onto a spreadsheet or upload into a system. And then it comes back and it says this percentage of children got this question right compared to our national average of, of, of this. Is that useful? It, it may be. Uh, it may be useful to know how your spread of results compares to the national. Um or it may not because maybe you, you, you've not taught things in the same order or whatever. You haven't covered certain things yet. Uh, I have heard teachers say we don't, uh, head teachers say we don't, we don't do that. We don't, we do the tests because we find the test useful. We, we, the score is useful. The score represents where a child is within the national population. And it's good at identifying outliers. It's good at seeing, you know, there's, this child is like um, sort of well below average and this child is well above average. This child was well above average. And now they're just that now they are sort of more in line with average. Um, but we don't bother doing the question of analysis, the uploading of the ones and zeros onto a spreadsheet uh, because it takes ages and it doesn't really give us useful information. Um, we find it much more useful just to see how the child has approached the question, because once you boil it down to a one or a zero, you lose all that rich information about how a child has, has maybe tackled that question. Two children can get a question right, but but tackle it in different ways. So you, you lose that. So we do have to have you know, think very hard about whether we go down that route because that is ramping up workload. And there is a massive workload issue uh, around tracking in schools, both of um, tracking against learning objectives, which often just, just gets block-filled, um, which tells you everything you need to know about that, that process, possibly. And, and the marking of standardised tests and the use of standardised tests. Do we need to do them every single term or can we just do them at the end of the year or just certain year groups? Um, you know, do we need to do them in reading, writing, maths, grammar, punctuation and spelling? These are questions that, 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 we need, we need to, that schools need to have. Is that providing you with useful information? I think knowing where children are within the national population is useful and that's what they do but whether we need to kind of use these tests as much as schools currently do i'm not i'm not so sure i don't know, richard if you've got anything to add to that
0: well again many things to say exactly it is it's such a difficulty um, i say just trying to get people to understand the difference between um as a day-to-day assessment that's happening in a classroom, and and what you're getting from a, a written assessment, as Jamie says, you know there are some I- issues around um, written assessments. Now schools have ended up um, being quite focused on question level analysis, um, and that's partly because the the, the companies that produce standardised assessments have have provided question level analysis because yep. schools have asked for question level, level analysis. And yep. my observation on that one is that I think. A lot of the time, that's probably because um, there's a misunderstanding of the purpose of the assessments. People feel that, okay, I want to use this assessment because this tells me what a pupil knows, which, again, isn't what it does. And again, um, uh, I'm often surprised when I talk um, to people working in schools that the assumption is that the pupil should be able to answer all of the questions on a particular test. Um, And of course, if you know anything about test design, that's not how tests are designed at all. Tests are not designed so that you can get 100% on the test because that's not a very useful uh, test. Um, uh, We might talk about reliability and validity at some point, um, but if you're getting 100% uh, on a test, it's not a very useful test because it doesn't allow you to differentiate between pupils. If you're using that as an assessment to place pupils on a continuum, if you're using it as an assessment of whether people know something, that's fine. But remember, Mm standardised tests are not doing that. Um, So uh, question level analysis, again, is questionable because the other thing is that when you're designing a test, um, you are limited in terms of, Um, time and focus Um, so you only have a certain amount of time um, and therefore um, uh, if if the test is too long the pupils will lose focus so you can only ask a certain number of test items there's only a certain number of questions on the test and if if you think about a typical um, maths test we tend to do two papers maybe 40 questions maybe 25 questions you know there's just not very many opportunities to ask questions so therefore to make inferences from those is is questionable shall we say um so yes so you need to be very careful about it and therefore the more you understand about how the tests are designed um i say written assessments particularly the more you understand the limitations of them which isn't to say that they're not useful but they have limitations
1: yeah okay Thank thank you guys So, so much. Um, I'm just going to stop very, very quickly. For anyone who has just joined us, we are here on the Saturday Social with James Pembroke and Richard Selfridge. We are talking data. If you've just joined us, uh, please feel free to ask any questions. We're on here for the next 30 minutes. I'm aware we've only got 30 minutes, and there's still so, so much to talk about. and uh, again, if you wanna ask any questions to James or Richard, please just put your hand up and I will make you a speaker. Um, onto our sponsor, again, for educational support in IT and computer science, Steve Woods is delivering a number of courses. Learn to Program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way in Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join Steve remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday, the 8th of June, 4 to 5. That's just passed. I just realize but visit stevewoods.co.uk to start your journey are you a state teacher uh in england why not be a hero this half term join steve for two days and receive up to a 1360 pound bursary terms and conditions apply aimed at secondary but primary teachers are also welcome visit stevewoods.co.uk to find out more also the oxford smart curriculum service provides secondary schools with an evidence-based curriculum at key stage three and key stage four and connects it with resources assessments next steps and cpd powered by oxford smart caboodle what makes oxford smart different Well, for the first time, curriculum is seamlessly connected with the resources, assessment, next steps, and CPD needed to deliver that curriculum. This curriculum coherence means all components work smoothly together, gathering data to give you the insight you need to plan, teach, assess, and monitor the progress of all your students effectively. As well as providing a personalized and adaptive learning pathway for all your students, Oxford Smart frees up your time to inspire a love of learning in your students and to spark awe and wonder in your classroom visit oup at global.oup.com to find out more all right if you've just joined us we are here on the saturday social talking dado with james pembroke and richard selfridge we only have about 20 minutes left everybody if you have any questions you do need to raise your hand um but 20 minutes left and we've got a couple of well we've got loads of topics we could talk about for hours and hours but let's talk very quickly i know we've really briefly briefly um discussed governors and i know a lot of schools and a lot of heads who are listening right now will be saying well my governors expect this and i know for one that i've been on a journey with my governors james you know this all too well (laughs) that they have expected quite a range uh, a range of different data things and i think the biggest thing for me as a head is to say to everyone listening is that you have to remember most of your governors haven't been teachers or don't know what schools look like, and therefore don't really know what data should look like. And therefore, I think it's very much more about heads saying, this is what our data is going to look like, and actually providing the data that tells your story, the information that you want your governors to have. And. Um, I just i want to go back to governors just really quickly and then i want to talk about reliability and validity as well which richard brought up again because i think those are two really important things so governors okay right
2: so uh one of my catchphrases well it's not a catchphrase mantra or whatever is that data you provide to governors should be a byproduct of your system which should be designed to support the needs of children and help teachers do their job so you don't don't uh, generate data specifically for governors. You set about, uh, first of all, you have a curriculum, then you work out how you're going to assess your curriculum and you're going to assess the various uh, children. And for some children, that will require specific assessments. Uh, For some, uh, for most, it will be more general. And in some cases, it might involve standardized tests and what have you. Uh, And then once you've done all of that, then I guess you're going to get some kind of tracking system in, which is going to store that information. As I said, your tracking system should not be uh, all about sort of trying to crunch these numbers into some kind of uh, progress measure. Your tracking system really should be a database that's capable of storing all of this information in one place. So your tracking system should be capable of storing contextual information about children, that sort of census information. Um, it should have statutory assessment history. It should have uh, your the results of uh, any sort of tests or, or and teacher assessments, obviously, in those subjects. Um, and, and once you've got all of that set up, then you can think right what do we want to report to governors and as i said earlier i think the starting point is to show governors in a primary school the percentage of children that are working at expectations if you like um in reading writing and maths i'm not sure there's a huge amount of value in going down into foundation subjects but reading writing and maths certainly and combined and showing that over time so for example the current year five you could show that you know, 62% of these children are currently meeting expectations. Back at key stage one, um, 82% of those same children met expectations at key stage one. Uh, therefore, we are seeing a drop. It might be that you're seeing an increase. So governors can see in different subjects, in different year groups, whether those proportions of children that are meeting expectations over time are increasing, decreasing, staying the same. Um, whether we've got an increasing number of children that are working uh, above expectations, if you like, if you've got such an assessment of greater depth, if you want to call it that. Uh, And then the focus then becomes, right, so we've got 22% of children in this cohort that are working below expectations in maths. That seems to be increasing year on year. Why is that? What are we doing about those children? And I think the most valuable uh, conversations that I have in governor's meetings are when we get subject leaders in or the SENCO comes in and talks to us about the way that the well in terms of subject leaders the way that they're sort of developing the, the the curriculum to make it more challenging or whatever and when the SENCO comes in to talk about the specific support that we're giving to certain children that's a really really valuable conversation data really only goes so far I mean it's a bit of a cliche to say you know it only raises it doesn't give answers it just raises questions but I think that's that's true. I think you need to minimise it. I think we need to be very cautious of the uh, the, the days of, Richard mentioned RAISE online, the, the ugly days of RAISE, when we were giving governors a 103-page RAISE report and expecting them to do something with it. Um, you, it becomes utterly counterproductive just to dump this uh, this big wedge of, 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 of data in front of them and expect something to do. I, I think we can... Uh, you need like a one-page contextual summary of your school, and then probably a couple of pages of data tops um, along the lines of what I just said. And then from then on, it's conversations, it's conversations about support, it's conversations about curriculum. Um, governors need to understand that progress is something that we can't, no matter how much they want it, is not something that we can measure. I think there are problems with many boards of governors where you have. You know, people from maybe from industry and business, and maybe their, their branch of industry or business, they, they could measure things. You could measure things in engineering. You can measure things in accountancy. You can measure some things in, in, in education, but it's a lot less reliable and it's a lot more kind of, well, I don't use the word flaky, but, but there's, there's a lot of noise. We use that word a lot. There's a lot of noise in education data. So, yeah, no. there you go. I th- I'm sure that you know, Richard's got plenty he can come in and say on that.
1: Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. Um, just very quickly, we have Brian, um, I think, who wants to possibly ask a question, who's just come on as a speaker. Brian, if you unmute your mic, you can um, you can ask your question
3: yeah yeah thanks thanks a lot uh the moderator and 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 thanks uh for for allowing me to to talk um I, i'm brian I'm, uh, I'm an epidemiologist and uh, physician and uh i do uh consume and use data a lot and one of the i think one of the questions um uh, i i've been asking myself lately is whether or not uh data no data um is better than than bad data and i think it's a very um, important uh, question. I think the last speaker was alluding to this a little bit earlier. Because as an epidemiologist uh, working in the public health space, uh, most of our decisions are really based on uh, what uh, uh, data is available. And I think if the uh, available data, uh, if there's no data, we become very cautious with how we uh, we decide uh, policy decisions and how we uh, we, we make decisions. But um, if the data itself, um, um, is, is, is uh, found to be wrong or bad or uh, misconstrued, it kind of invalidates our trust in the data uh, process or in the data collection uh, system. So I, it's a question I think I've been uh, debating a lot and I've been, uh, you know, asking myself a lot and how do we, um, you know, it's, it's good, it's, uh, it's no data better than uh, than, than bad data. So I, I, that's just something I wanted to hear the, the panel's uh, thoughts on and um, yeah.
1: Great, great, great question, Brian. And uh, I know James will have a lot yeah. to say about that because that's his pin tweet. <laughs>
2: it's my pin, my pin tweet. It's my, been my pin tweet years. for years for a long, long time. Like, when are you going to change your pin tweet? And I just I can't be bothered to be honest. I mean, it's just yeah, bad data is not better than no data at all, or whatever it says. I, I think that's my yeah, my pin tweet. I totally agree, and it comes down to these conversations. If we have really, really honest conversations. Is the data so? For example, quite recently, um, I was talking to a school that had a a banding system for their teacher assessment. So a child would start. uh, I'm sure they won't mind me um, saying. um, So, uh, well, let's. I'll vary it a bit. Um, So a a child starts the say year two uh, as two B, and then they are two B slash D, and then they're two, and then they're two D slash s and then they're 2s and then they're 2s slash plus or something um and they ended up with i think it was eight separate bands per year and i asked this teacher does anyone know the difference between a 2b and a 2b slash d and they said no they just put them when it's the next because they've 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 purposely got enough bands for each half term and an extra couple of bands for the bonus points so every teacher knows that when it's the half term you push them from b to b Slash D, and then the next term they go into the D, and then the next term they go into the D slash, and that's what they do. So that's that's meaningless data. It's completely made up. That's bad data. That does that serves no purpose other than just to keep maybe governance. So what they then report to governors is that boys, on average, and I'm thinking about a quote from Amanda Spielman now, boys on average make uh, three point seven points of progress and girls on average made 4.2 points progress and governors look at that and think oh so boys so girls are making more progress than boys and then that's that's it that tells it doesn't what it's just noise it's absolute noise so no get rid of that delete that don't do that because it's meaningless you tell governors right broadly speaking and this is obviously usually based on teacher assessment but based on the assessments of our teachers 70 percent of children are okay meeting the standards of the curriculum set in in the, for that curriculum 30 percent aren't let's talk about those 30 percent um and that's as far really as data is going to go um i think that standardized tests are interesting we've talked about that at length standardized tests you, you in theory go oh well they got this standardized test score and then they got this standardized test score. And again, let's subtract one from the other. And they got, oh, they've made three points of progress. No, it doesn't mean that at all. For a start, you know, again, standardized tests are noisy. I think they're it's useful data, but we have to accept that they are noisy. And I think NFER maybe and GL certainly, they put confidence bands around, which can be quite wide. You know, they get wider, I think, at the bottom end, and the top end of the scale. But th- there's noise there. There's noise with standardized assessment. There's massive noise with teacher assessment. So no. Um, it's not, if it's bad data, uh, then w- get rid of it. If it's, if there's reliability issues, then we, and, but then we need to accept the reliability issues and we have to be very cautious about who we then report that to, because they might just take it as red, Uh, and this is accurate and it's not. So everyone who is an audience of that data needs to don't report them nonsense If you're reporting anything that's slightly uh, that has some reliability issues which is pretty much everything in education then they need to understand what the reliability issues are and they need to understand the
0: noise
1: (laughs) so how do we make data reliable and valid
0: (laughs) that's a really interesting discussion because um so we use this term we talk about noisy data and uh occasionally fuzzy data because because particularly from a standardized assessment there the data is a bit noisy and a bit fuzzy um Technically, uh, in terms of uh, if you're a psychometrician or statistician, um, what you're really talking there about is is measurement error. So there is some error in measurement if you're trying to use a written assessment to try and assess um, uh, an individual. So you get measurement error. Because... Um, this is and this is a discussion about reliability and validity in assessments because if you've got a written assessment there the theory is that there and any individual should have a should get a true score there is a true score for an individual that they should get on that assessment the problem is that you don't quite know what the true score is because there is some error there's some measurement error and the measurement error comes in for all kinds of reasons it could be that the questions uh, are about things that the people is less confident about it could be to use one of Jamie's favorite example it could be the squirrel problem where the yeah, child the problem. <laughs> do you want to tell the squirrel problem, Jamie? Well, uh, the yeah, squirrel so,
2: problem. you know I, I i use this to illustrate the point of a school um, having a progress score that's significantly above average but only just that confidence interval is only just sitting above the zero line so they're significantly above and i sort of explain this sliding doors moment where in the key stage two sats hall uh, this one child just sits and notices a squirrel in the tree and they look outside the, the, and they watch the squirrel for, for a minute, going up and down the, screen, the, the tree, enjoying itself. And and then the child comes back to the test and, and gets back on on with the test. And that's enough time for that child just to lose a few marks, uh, which is enough. The knock-on effect of that is it's enough to reduce the school's aggregated result down so that their their confidence interval no longer sits above, the, it straddles the zero line, so they're not significantly above, so they don't get that letter from the local authority asking, congratulating them and asking them to do support work with with all those local schools. And the governors are no longer thinking, well, hey, we're a significantly above school, we're going to be outstanding, just because a child looked out of a window and watched a squirrel in a tree. There's nothing different about that school, but our, except for the fact that a child watched a squirrel in a tree, but our perception of that school has completely changed because they are no longer classified as being significantly above
0: average exactly and that's because a lot of people put too much emphasis or they they want numbers to be accurate because in everyday life we're used to numbers being accurate but yep. in measurement of individuals accuracy is 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 something you're just simply going to have to accept that you're not going to get. However, people, as um, I say, if, if you take an assessment, you, you, there is a true score which you should get, um, but there's some measurement error because of the squirrel problem, because of the questions that you use. Um, <laughs> so you've got all those things in there. So reliability is a, um, I say, it's this idea that, that that you get a true score. Um, and what, in terms of uh, what we mean by reliability of an assessment, is is how consistent the assessment is. So you measure reliability by looking at did a a given pupil get the similar kinds of questions right and similar kinds of questions wrong? And this is one of the um, really useful uh, uh, tools that you can use as a statistician. And you can pick up where pupils, uh, where somebody has altered the results of a test. And you can see that because um, mm. uh, often if somebody has alternate results in the test, and unfortunately because of the pressures on them, sometimes people do. Um, you can see that they're, they're, the suddenly the pupils getting questions correct, which which isn't consistent with the other questions which they got right or wrong. So reliability is about, I say, consistency and the idea that basically that you're that you um, you're getting similar kinds of questions right and wrong. Now. Again, I could talk more about classical test theory and the uh, and problems with it. Um, but this is where you've got a written tests, all the people are answering the same questions. There's some issues with this. There's item response theory, which goes on a bit further than this. And this is where you've got adaptive tests where, where different people are answering different questions, but you get into item response and, and then it's slightly different. But in a classical test, reliability basically means are you getting similar kinds of things right and wrong? And this is the thing where when we talk about the reliability of a test, there is very little, well, there's almost no point having a test that's 100% reliable. Because if it's 100% reliable, it means that pupils are either getting everything right or everything wrong. And because we've talked about the fact that these tests are not designed to check what you know, but where you sit compared to your peers, you need there to be some flexibility in there. You need pupils to be getting about half of the questions plus right. For most pupils, a typical score should be around about you know half plus a bit. You don't want everybody getting everything right. Um, so again, reliability is about is about producing a test that's internally consistent, and then we talk about validity of a test. And the validity of a test it, it's it's basically is a test actually measuring something meaningful, which whoever designed the test means for the test to measure. So and therefore, can we actually make inference based on the assessment? So that's what val- validity of, a, of an assessment means. Again, you're trying to produce a, an assessment that's that's um, you know that's not too hard. For everybody, but is a challenge for some pupils, uh, and is not too easy for everybody. And then you should get a reasonably reliable test, um, and say, and then you're trying to say, can we infer something from this? Um, thinking about it as well, because the one percent um, club, which is a good example, of currently, but it, most of us will probably know who wants a millionaire, um, the TV program. And if you think about that, you can win a million pounds in that, but most contestants win about fifty thousand pounds. Now there are twelve questions in Who Wants a Millionaire to be a millionaire. And £50,000 is seven questions, which is about in the middle because they choose questions which are quite difficult for most people as you get towards the top end there. So the back end of your test papers will have some questions which are quite difficult for most people. But some people will be able to get um, uh, answer those questions and they will get a very high score in your assessment. But you're looking for items that differentiate between pupils um, kind of in the middle mostly. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, and then the last thing while i'm talking about it before we finish is thinking about those pupils particularly the higher end i think there's more things you can do for pupils who've made more development in secondary school and i think there's definitely things you can do there because the curriculum begins to change for pupils in secondary school i think it's a lot harder in primary and i'd be really interested if anybody's got any good examples of what do you do for those pupils who for whatever reason are streaks ahead of everybody else again i think there are a few things you can do but a lot of the time i think you should be using those pupils to um, consolidate their knowledge by using them as resources in your classroom. That will help those pupils, that will push those pupils. Because if they're able to explain things to other pupils or support other pupils, that's a really good way of supporting and pushing those pupils. But I'd really love to hear of anybody else who does anything special for pupils in let's say year two who are streaks ahead of everybody else. What do you do? I'm not sure, I'd love to know.
1: That would be a great whole other show in itself, actually Richard. (laughs) And we've got five, I know, we've got five minutes left, and honestly, we could continue going for another hour and a half. Um, Five minutes left, four minutes left. So what final points, uh, James and Richard, just a final quick point, anything just main point that you want to say?
2: Okay, well, well I, I, one of the things I do want because we talked about tests quite a lot, and one of the things one of the points I do want to make is re- relating to children with special education needs that are working below, that's an important distinction to make, that are working below so-called age related expectations. There is a tendency in many schools to give those children, say a year five child who's working a couple of years below, uh, give that child a, a, a test designed for a year three child. So, uh, if they're using NFER tests or, or Rising Stars tests, they give them a paper that's designed for a year job. That's fine if the questions on that are, you know, appropriately pitched, and you think it's it's good for them to have a go at that. Um, but the most the important thing to note is that the score that you get from it is meaningless, um, in my opinion, <laughs> because that's not the way it was standardised. You know, it's not it, it, you're basically just showing what, how this uh, this ten year old compares to seven year olds or, or eight year olds. It's it's a uh, that the the test when it was standardized was standardized using a big uh, reference sample of um, year five children that includes children at the very sort of highest levels of attainment and the lowest levels of attainment and everyone in between because that's how you scale it and, and you standardize it. So it does take account of children who are working below with special education needs and and therefore if you get that child to sit a, a year three paper and they get a hundred and three, which is a little tiny bit above average, uh, it just doesn't really tell you anything. So that's something to be aware of. That number doesn't really mean much. If they go and get the 103 on that paper and then next term they go and do a year five paper and they get 86, it doesn't mean they've gone backwards. It actually means they've made progress because they were doing year three papers and now they're doing year five um, papers. Um, but anyway, the last thing I want to, I mentioned a quote from Manda Spielman earlier. So I'm going to finish by uh, reading this. This is from her, the Brianston education summit. And I refer to this a lot. And I think it's, uh, it, this was, this, this was before the change to the framework um, so I think it's quite important. Uh, anyway, so in this speech, she said, uh, with reference to tracking, she said, we do not expect to see six-week tracking of pupil progress and vast elaborate spreadsheets. What I want school leaders to discuss with our inspectors is what they expect pupils to know by certain points in their life, uh, i.e., the curriculum, I guess, and how they know they know it, i.e. assessment, and crucially, what the school does when they find out that they don't. These conversations are much more constructed than inventing Byzantine number systems, which, let's be honest, can often be meaningless. And then on the subject of presenting data to, say, governors, nor do I believe there is merit in trying to look at every individual subgroup of pupils at school level. It is very important that we monitor the progress of underperforming pupil groups, but often this is best done at a national level or possibly even a mat or local authority level, because you have the numbers there, where meaningful trends may be identifiable, rather than at school level, where apparent differences are often likely to be statistical noise. And yet... When it comes to governors particularly we break down the data um most schools are breaking down the data into every single subgroup and then you think that it's telling you something that it's not and you you end up with priorities being based on this data uh and then if next year you find it's not a trend it's just a particular cohort one child in a small group is going to be is going to have a distorting effect on that data. And the next year, it's something completely different. So it's nice to see that Ofsted now in the inspection data summary report, unlike RAISE, which have pages and pages of group level data, they don't have any. There is no group level data in that because it's most likely to be statistical noise. So I'll finish with that.
1: Thank you so much, James. Richard, final point.
0: My final point, I'll add to a bit what Jamie uh, said there, it, which is that uh, remember that any outcome for an individual is reasonable. Population outcomes are very different. So whereas you might expect um, populations to have certain outcomes for individuals, mm. some individuals find school very difficult. Some school children don't. Some find it very easy. So any outcome is, is is reasonable. And then the last thing is, again, if you're still thinking about data in terms of progress, you really need to move beyond that and think about data in terms of giving you the information you need to change things so that you go for an action focus, so you're doing something for those pupils who are not developing well through your curriculum.
1: Excellent. Get rid of progress and have a focus on action. I think we could do a whole another show. So listen out because we might have James and Richard back on for another show soon. Thank you both so much for joining me this morning on a Saturday. I know you had better things to do, I'm sure, but this was such a useful conversation and I'm sure everyone listening has felt the same. So thank you both so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. So, Thank you so much. So the rest of you, go get the book, Data Proof Your School, have a read of it, uh, written by Richard and James, um, and do have a read. And can they get you both into schools if they wanted to talk further, tweet you? Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. We can do data bust uh, data busting days. We've, we've got one in Oldham in two weeks' time at um, Andrew Percival's school, Stanley Road Primary. Um, if anyone wants to come along to that, then uh, you know please come join us. Um, but yeah, we, we will put on days or half days or whatever. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yep. Excellent. And you can have a data party all of your own as oh, well. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Get the out.
1: So thank you guys so, so much, and thank you all so much for joining us this morning on the Saturday Social with Talk Teachers Radio, lots of other shows coming up this afternoon, and join me in a couple of weeks where we've got another show, and I'm sure we will have James and Richard on again very, very soon, because there's so much more to talk about data. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great Saturday, and see you all soon. Take care. Bye.